0: The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. But what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter.
1: I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life.
0: To find out more, go to cooroundtable.com. That's cooroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Operations Room, a podcast for CROs. I am Brandon Minsinger, joined by my co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany?
1: I'm <laughs> just struggling for a second. I was like... Do I be positive or do I be honest?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's like a a business choice always, isn't it? You have your actual reaction and then you're like, all right, I need to put my business hat on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm recovering, I would say. I had a bit of a tough weekend. We found out that a friend of ours died unexpectedly on Thursday, and unexpected deaths are always difficult. So... Just still processing, I would say, rather than good or bad. Often with a death, you think about like your life and how lucky you are. But this time it's just taking a while to settle in my body. Maybe let's say I'm just not processing it very much. So I ended up with a mixed weekend accidentally getting way, way too drunk on Saturday night, not realizing at all that it was a reaction to the death until. Probably noon on Sunday. And I'm like, ah, oh, yes. That bottle of whiskey at one in the morning seems like such a good idea.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, yes. I think your guards come down slightly when unexpected events happen that are tragic, I think, of that magnitude.
1: Yeah. So feeling really just shattered, I would say. Like it's the weekends happened, it's Monday, slept well last night, but tired and processing.
0: I think when there's unexpected deaths that matter to you a lot. It is hard to figure out how to know how to react and how to feel sometimes, and also just like coming to grips with what's actually happened. It's confusing.
1: Yeah, it's confusing and not necessarily like the chipper thing that everybody's tuned in to listen to today, but I just didn't think I could
0: (laughs) put put the business hat on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think for myself, I went out to go see. Richard Gibson from Aravina. he's the chairperson there. He's been the chairperson for about four years now. I went to their office, which is fabulous, by the way. It's right downtown, right in the theater district. And it was really nice to see Richard because he was the former chairperson for SwiftKey, where I worked for about four or five years. We had a really close, tight relationship, I would say. And I think we're both kind of similar personality types, which is a little more level-headed and I wouldn't say logical, but just a little more reflective on what happens in businesses, I think sometimes we had a good chat. So we had this kind of funny conversation just about relevance of your career as you get older and how you become, this feeling grows inside you over time that somehow you're becoming less relevant (laughs) overall to your job and your career and what happens. Millennials taking hold in kind of management positions and so on, you start feeling like somehow your relevance to tech is kind of fading, I guess, in some respects.
1: Oh, that's interesting because I thought you were going to go in a different way of like, how relevant does your career stay to your life? I was at a customer success conference last week and ended up speaking to two other women who have also opted out of the workforce at similar points of their career to me. And we ended up having a big conversation about identity and how much of work is part of your identity or not. And now that they're embarking and not working, what is their identity and who are they? Which I guess is all kind of like layered on top of of each other, it's interesting for me. I hadn't realized that work had stopped being my identity until I, after I left Peak. But I kept, like, if I would go into on a podcast, or I was introduced and people were like, "Oh, it's the COO of Peak, Bethany." Ayers, I would just cringe, and I was like, "Why am I cringing so much? Why does this feel so uncomfortable?" And I thought it was like you humbleness or lack of ego. Of course, you know, saying that you have lack of ego is always a really good way of right. like, proving you have ego, <laughs> but. <laughs> Very true. But I realized that it was I was so uncomfortable with it because it was just not part of my identity. And it was only after I left week and found leaving so easy that I realized that part of what was easy for me was it hadn't stuck. And so maybe this is like all a relevant conversation starting with death is one of the ways that I test what is my identity and how do I de- identify is if I were to lose that thing in my life, would it change my identity? And so- if something horrific happened and I was no longer a mother, I know that my identity would still be being a mother. I would just be a mother who didn't have children. It's just horrible to even say. Whereas if my husband and I were no longer together, I would be very sad and I love him, but it doesn't change my identity. Like in no way is being a wife part of my identity. Yet being American is.
0: I think sometimes when you work in organizations where you're a senior-level executive, you have people reporting into you, you have budgets, there's some level of importance placed on you in terms of the rest of the organization and you're kind of viewed that way. It makes you feel like you matter. I think the feeling that you get from that, for the most part, for a lot of people, is that the more you have of that, the more you matter. And this kind of gets to the nature of ambition and why people have ambition to begin with sometimes, which is they want more. They want bigger teams, bigger budgets, bigger sizes, and it's never big enough and it never ends. You know, and I think to your point, being in a position in your life where that kind of mattering doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> you know, it takes a bit of like an evolved sensibility, I guess. And I think a lot of that sensibility tends to come with age because you you realize your life is finite, you have a certain amount of time in front of you, and the question as to what actually matters versus kind of superimposed conditions around you in terms of companies and whatever else that kind of come and go, and what's left after that to your point. That's the essence of I guess maybe what you're saying which is who are you what's your identity and what matters to you what's important to you
1: absolutely and i think it comes with age and the experience of how fleeting the things that you really want are and then how empty or back to normal you feel afterwards so the first fundraise so exciting the first big fundraise it was for us bessemer 35 million like wow so much money what could we possibly do that's going to last us forever And it was hard, hard earned. Like I've never worked harder in my life, including giving birth to two children. And within a week, BAU, everything is returned to normal. That 35 million now has to get spent. All the pressure's on. The next quarter is still in front of you. And the euphoria and the joy is just gone immediately. And over and over again, new car, new house, like everything that you think you want, as soon as you have it, the joy doesn't last very long. My engagement ring is my only exception. Like every single time I put on my engagement ring, I still love it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's great. I put my ring on every day, actually, in the morning. Uh, I wear it all the time. But when I go to the gym, I take it off for gym workouts because it gets in the way of deadlifts and whatever else. Afterwards, I always put it back on. And I have a similar sensation a little bit, which is feeling of like permanence or relationship when I put the ring back on. And I get that every day, or at least Monday through Friday.
1: So like what matters versus a car.
0: And then just coming full circle back to the relevance piece, I think there is a key part on this, which is if you have financial freedom, it gives you the, the opportunity to kind of think in ways that you do, I think, to be honest, because if you don't have financial freedom, you're really thinking about this question of relevance. Do I continue to have the right skills? Do I continue to have uh, the right abilities to work within these companies and to be highly effective and get paid what I get paid, essentially? What is this question of, Mentorship is so important, I think, in people's lives, whether you're in younger in your career or older in your career, where having somebody that can really reflect back to you and help you think through challenges and issues that you're having and concerns that you have from a business point of view, I think is incredibly powerful and incredibly useful and very much underused by a lot of people. And then the other piece, when I work in companies really historically, it's always been heads down, and by being heads down, I didn't do networking per se. I did a little bit, but really not not a tremendous amount. And kind of like the, the whole learning thing kind of goes by the wayside outside of what I'm literally learning day to day, week to week in the business itself. The notion of allocating a time, an hour or two, to read a book or to listen to something that is not directly going to benefit my company, I just stopped doing. Allocating time in my calendar, just like I do for my workouts in the morning, allocating time for some level of networking, some level of learning that isn't directly relevant to the company, but more generally is useful for myself in terms of the direction that I'm heading. It has to be maintained and just prioritizing that and calendaring it effectively, whereby it actually happens.
1: I think it makes sense. I I always love when I connect the dots or my brain connects the dots between completely unrelated things, and so I feel like there's always learning to be had that is not obvious. It'll be some other concept sitting in a different. World that you can suddenly pull in and see a pattern or see a way of addressing something. I feel like this happens to me in my life on a nearly daily basis. And this is something else that's happened as I've gotten older. It's just being very aware of my energy and what's energy giving, neutral and energy sapping. And sometimes you just have to, if something doesn't naturally happen and you feel like you have to force yourself, it's probably because it's massively energy draining. And then it's like, it goes into the should pile. For me, it sounds like networking for you is a bit of a should pile rather than a energy-generating one. So are there other ways that you can meet people that is not networking? <laughs> ways that it would actually give you energy and happens to have the added benefit of meeting people.
0: All right. So we have got a wonderful topic today, which is how does a COO achieve success in a PE-backed business? We've got the perfect guest for this and Sam Smith. He is the founder and managing director of Pep Talks, where they focus exactly on that, which is how to get management teams up to speed on PE expectations. So with that, let's go on a quick break. And when we come back, we will be back with Mr. Sam Smith.
1: I am Delighted to welcome Sam Smith of Pep Talks to the podcast today. Sam has an illustrious career working in and around the private equity space, and we thought it'd be really fun to spend some time sharing what it's like in the VC world, what it's like in the PE world, for all of us who are always curious about whether or not it's greener on the other side. It's certainly more lucrative on one side than the other, I would say.
2: Welcome, Sam. Thanks, Beth. Good to see
1: you. those of us who don't know a lot about private equity, which for our listeners, I think we'll just call PE for ease for the rest of the episode, what is the commercial model?
2: Well, there are a couple of commercial models. There's the commercial model by which private equity, as an investment case, need themselves to return and make money. And then there's a commercial model that's slightly different for each portfolio company. But if we just take the example, if let's just say the three of us want to establish and set up our own private equity fund, and let's call it Pep Talks Capital. I quite like the the sound and ring of that. If we were to do that, what have we got to do? How do we get started? And what does the business need to look like? So, we need to go and raise some money. And let's target 500 million because that's sort of classic mid-market private equity fund size here in the UK. There are other versions of private equity. There's the sort of mega buyout, uh, large cap sort of private equity world, which you get to hear about a lot in the newspapers. And how they operate is slightly different. And then there's this sort of turnaround private equity world, which you might also hear about. I'm generalizing for the mid-market, which is the largest segment of the private equity world. You're talking about investments with enterprise values of anything from 20 million to five or 600 million. You know, that's a sort of big chunk of the private equity world.
1: A quick question on that is, you're talking about enterprise value. In the VC world, we almost always, like we understand valuations, but we mostly think about recurring revenue. So what would be the recurring revenue of a 20 to 500?
2: The valuation is based off an EBITDA number, an EBITDA number and a multiple number. And the multiple is set really by the market. So what other Businesses in your sector and industry have uh, been sold for recently over the last 12 to 24 months. That really sort of sets the multiple, along with a whole load of other things, which we can get into later. But really, valuation EV is based off a multiple of EBITDA. So some of them are recurring revenue, but they're not really multiples. Rarely does happen, but rarely are they multiples of revenues.
1: I'm trying to get a feel for what a $20 million to $500 million you said was the top end of mid-market.
2: They would be doing sort of between 2 million of EBITDA, 1.5 to 2 million of EBITDA, to you know, 50 million, 500 million, 600, 700 million enterprise value businesses, probably doing you know closer to 50, 60, 70, even up to 100 million of EBITDA. Multiples vary hugely across different sectors, shapes, and sizes of businesses. So tech tends to get really high multiples. Anything with good recurring revenue streams is going to get a higher multiple. But you know, professional services, recruitments, those sort of sectors might get a multiple of six, eight times EBITDA versus 15 to 20 times. It's really, really broad. And there's a private equity fund out there for every size of transaction. So if we just go back to the idea that Pep Talks Capital wants to raise 500 million pounds, we need to raise 500 million pounds as our private equity fund to go invest. We're going to do that by going to a bunch of Institutional shareholders, we call them LPs, limited partners. So we're a general partner, uh, venture capitalists, probably a general partner as well. And we go out to limited partners to go and sell them our story, really. And our story is an investment strategy. We will have a strategic approach to doing deals that could be we're backing first time entrepreneurial businesses in that lower enterprise value sort of range to professionalize them, to really gear them so they can accelerate their growth. Or we might be doing buy and builds. We might be bolting businesses together. We might be doing you know many more than two or three strategic acquisitions. We might go and do 20 acquisitions in three to five years. It might be carve-outs. But the point is we have to go to the LPs with an investment strategy. They're not just going to give us the money. So we have to have a point of difference because there's lots of people out there trying to raise money. The second thing is we need a track record. They're not just going to give us the money because we've got a good idea. We need to show them that we have delivered. Usually, as partners in in other private equity funds. So, we have gained our own personal track record or we might be in investment banking, but we can point to some great successes where we have taken institutional money, deployed it and returned large amounts of capital. We're going to go and raise that 500 million. We're going to go on the road. We're going to go and speak to a lot of people. We're going to use a number of advisors to help us do that. We're going to sell our story and we're going to get the commitments of 20, 30, 50, 60, 100 different LPs are going to commit their money to us and they come together as a fund of 500 million. A couple of key points though, they're not going to say, here's 500 million. They're going to say, here's 450 million, Beth, Brandon, and Sam, and we we want you guys to come up with the 50. So usually they're committing 90% and they want 10% from us. So that's going to come from our own pockets. That's going to be our money and it's the money that we've made through our careers. The three of us are going to be the managing partners of this fund but we're also going to hire a group of partners and every partner we hire we're probably going to ask them to invest into this fund as well and there's various sort of quite complicated ways that we allow them to invest it might be through salary sacrifice or bonus sacrifice it might be through the course of transactions it might be a lump sum up front but everybody in the fund has got skin in the game over that fund is going to be 10 years in life cycle and we are going to spend five years and every fund's the same every private equity fund has 10 years typically to deploy and to return and we are going to probably spend five years investing and five years returning classic on paper that's what it looks like in real terms you know the trains are coming in and out of the station in different timescales. we might bring a business in and sell it within two years we might bring a business in and not sell it for eight years but we're managing this fund to deliver a return back to the LPs. And really the metric they're going to measure us on is we need to deliver at least twice money back. So we raise 500 million, the pension funds, the life assurance funds, the sovereign wealth funds are going to expect a billion back at least, two times money. And if we don't show them along the way that we're close to tracking to at least deliver two times money, we're going to struggle to raise another fund. And we don't live as a private equity fund through one 10-year life cycle. What we're doing is we'll spend three or four years investing this fund and fairly quickly we'll be looking to do some exits through this fund to show that we're deploying money and returning money and we're doing what we're saying we're going to do. And we might do two or three exits within that 10-year cycle fairly quickly, three to five years in, and then we'll hit the road again and raise another fund. You don't wait until the end of the fund and until it's completely mature to go and raise another fund. You want to be doing it sort of in transition. So private equity funds will be managing, if they've been around for some time, two or three or four funds at any one time.
1: So all of that is very similar to the VC world. It's just the expected return is different.
0: Have you ever seen mixing the tracks, so to speak? So if you're a venture-backed company and at some point on the venture train, cause you need to feed off that venture train in terms of your, your next round, getting to the right metric set, getting new investment and moving on to the next round until you theoretically IPO in this case, or you fail on that pathway somehow and have to sell off to a strategic investor and so on. Have you ever seen a venture company get off that track and somehow restructure the company to get on the private equity track? <laughs> so. The VC company isn't meeting astronomical expectations. They've stalled out to some extent, but it's still a big and reasonably sized company and reasonably successful, maybe not on the VC scale, but on kind of normal scales, I guess. Is it actually possible? And have you seen a venture-backed company transition over to private equity?
2: Yes, you definitely see venture-backed businesses transition into private equity ownership. And sometimes with the sort of real unicorns, you might get some private equity money sitting alongside Venture money, but it's rare. It's definitely rare because private equity as a transaction is using debt as an instrument. So, a a classic leverage buyout, a management buyout, typically is using debt in the transaction to fund part of that transaction. And if you're using debt, you have to be cash generative, you have to be profitable because you've got to pay the interest on that debt on a quarterly basis. And ideally, you want to be paying down that debt through the course of the investment so it's fairly rare and i I would say that those venture businesses have to be into that highly cash generative highly profitable and some of those go that way the big difference for us if we've got private equity capital that's pep talks capital the big difference is that we need a two to two and a half times return out of every deal we do so venture i think will look at a deal and say okay well we know that 80 percent of these aren't really going to work we like these businesses because of their model and their sector, and they're looking to sort of change the way their industry works. And they could be unicorns, but we know statistically we've got a 20% chance or 10% chance of getting a great return. But when we do get a return, it's going to be astronomical and it's going to pay for the rest. That's not how private equity works at all. If you get private equity investment as a management team, they are expecting a very minimum of a two times return. Because otherwise, we're going to be out of business, right? We're not going to be able to raise another fund.
1: And I think that's where, when I'd alluded to how lucrative one is versus the other, it comes into play. There's an element of risk and an element of glory. So in the way that the VC world works, there are many more businesses, there's a lot of money floating around, but as an exec, you're most likely not going to make a life-changing sum of money, or very few people will, because you don't actually own very much of the business. And the chances of it becoming a unicorn are quite small. I've been fortunate enough that might not have been a unicorn, but it wasn't a failure either. So we were able to get some return and a decent return because that's like everybody always thinks about the failing or the massive home run, but actually a lot of businesses will do well. Just maybe like PE level well, not VC level well. And But in private equity, you're more cash constrained. You have to run a real business well, if you deliver the growth that you need to deliver, you are guaranteed to make a significant sum of money as a management team.
2: If you deliver your plan and you deliver the numbers, you will make money.
1: As a management team, I'm thinking.
2: As a, as a management team, yeah. yeah. That again, the brackets of how much money you make vary hugely, again, depending on the size of the transactions and The debt, really. The debt has a significant impact in the capital structure in terms of whether management make money. Pep Talks Capital can still make a one and a half, two times return, but the management team might not make anything. And that's because of the capital structure. That's because of the debt. What does that look like?
1: And what are you looking for? Like, How do you know it's a good business that you should join? Okay,
2: well... The amount of leverage, the amount of debt in the business, is a good indicator. But let's just say, going back to Pep talks capital, we've raised our five hundred million. We're going to be backing businesses with enterprise values of about a hundred million. So let's take a hundred million transaction that we found, and we're going to do this deal. This is sort of the classic sort of capital structure that we might go with. So we need to write a hundred million pound check. Forty million of that we will capture from bank debt. will go to banks or debt funds, private debt funds, and there's a proliferation of these debt funds now in private equity market. Actually, more debt comes from debt funds than traditional high street banks. But we will go to that bank and say, look, here's this business. This is what it's doing in terms of EBITDA and cash generation. And this is the strategy in the plan. Will you give us 40 million quid for it? 40 million quid in terms of the debt package, we need to raise 100 to do the deal. And a big part of the private equity expertise is going out and sourcing our expertise and doing deals is sourcing that debt and structuring that debt in in terms of the best terms that we can get. In the last 10 to 15 years has been amazingly cheap. It's been a fabulous environment to do private equity deals, whereas now it's a lot more expensive. Last year debt rose hugely in terms of interest rate charges. You know, you might be paying eight percent on an interest charge on a we call it senior debt on the loan. In the old days you might have only been charging three, four percent. But we got first thing we gotta do is capture that senior debt, forty million quid. The next thing we're gonna do is probably put about fifty-five to fifty-nine million pounds from our fund. That five hundred million pound fund. Fifty-nine million is gonna come out of that and into this deal. But we're not going to structure that 59 million just purely in terms of equity. And you sort of think private equity, surely that's all going in is just equity. no, 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 we're cleverer than that. What we're going to do is put that 59 million in as a loan note. So this too is a loan. The difference between this debt versus the senior debt is, as a business, you're going to have to pay an interest on that senior debt quarterly and ideally pay it down. It's exactly the same as your mortgage. You've got to service that mortgage and ideally repay the mortgage. With the loan note, you don't have to pay us anything in terms of interest through the course of the investment cycle. But at the end of the cycle, as we exit, you're going to pay us a compound interest rate. So what that means is every year – that debt is becoming more and more expensive. So, we put 59 million in three to five years down the track, that business will be owing us a lot more than 59 million back because it's a compounding interest. And typically, loan notes are at 8 to 12% on an annualized basis of the debt. So, that's the loan note element. That's really important. It's an expensive piece of debt and the compounding makes a big difference to the management teams because obviously if we can get the deal done and as a management team we can turn the business in terms of you know accelerating growth and value into two and a half years we're going to pay a lot less for that debt than we would do if it took us six years to get to that valuation do you understand do you see where i'm getting on the last piece there's only a one million left that's going to go in to the equity and what private equity are great at saying to the management team well What we're going to do is discount some of that equity, sweet equity for the management team, because we want your skin in the game as well. As much as we've got so much skin in the game as a private equity fund, 10% of the funders come from us. We want a bit of this, your skin in the game in this. But actually, we're going to make this as reasonably priced as we possibly can for you. So management are going to have to pay for it. And how they pay for it, again, that's a whole different topic. But it's not necessarily hundreds of thousands of pounds up front. You might pay for it on the exit. You might pay for it through your bonuses again. You might pay for some of it up front and some of it at the back end, but effectively, your private equity are discounting the equity value of this 100 million transaction to bring and stimulate the management team in so that they are energized to really grow this business and they're sitting alongside almost the interests of the private equity fund. So that's the classic capital structure senior debt, loan note, and then a sliver of equity. And that equity is. Maybe 10 to 20% of that is is held for management, 10% typically for management teams. Now, let's just roll that forward. That's the valuation when we do the deal. Let's say four years later, five years later, we've done a pretty decent job. We've grown EBITDA. We've probably slightly improved the multiple. We've been cash generative all the way through, and we've been paying down some of that senior debt, uh, that bank debt. And the valuation of the business has gone from 100 to 170 million. Okay. So, let's just think of that. 100 to 170 million. How does that break down? Let's say we've paid down half the bank debt. So, the bank debt isn't 40 million anymore. It's 20 million. That's really good news for management teams. It's a big – and makes that sliver of equity worth more. Next, that low note component, that was 59 million when we did the deal. Four to five years later, that's actually going to have a value of more like 90 million. You see how private equity are making money. Management team aren't making any money out of that. That's the private equity return. So now there's 60 million left, and that's 60 million that's the equity value. So the equity value has has risen significantly, and the management team, and that's say, going to get 10 to 20 percent of that. So if that's 60 million, there's going to be six to 12 million going to management team. It says 12 million. So really, the private equity return is going to be 138 million. So we wrote a check for 100 million using only how much did I say? 59 million of our own money. And we've got a return of 138 million. It's 170 million total EV. Got to give the bank money back. Management team are going to take some equity, but we've got about 130, 138, 140 million quid coming back into the fund. Hey, presto, we've done a great job. Not a brilliant job. That is an okay return.
0: I would still like to join uh, Pep Talks private equity. It sounds like a fabulous uh, return (laughs) from my standpoint.
2: Yeah. But remember, we've got to give a billion back. We've got to turn the 500 million into a billion. So if we're doing 10 deals at that sort of return level, we're just about getting there. We're not going to be making shed loads of money as a private equity fund ourselves. For us personally, we're going to be doing pretty well, but we're not knocking it out of the park. The tricky bit is under private equity ownership is, if it doesn't take us four years to get to that valuation, it takes us six or seven, eight years to get to that valuation, that loan note component is gonna become a lot more expensive. And secondly, if we're not generating the cash through the growth that we would like to, we're still growing, but not throwing off as much cash as we'd like, we're not gonna be able to pay down that senior debt either. And that's why sometimes management don't make the money because the investment's been held for too long so that's why the management equity might erode in value. Private equity firms still make a return, not a huge stellar return, but they're going to, you know, it's not a disaster. And management are going to get a much smaller check as a result.
1: I think that might be where, like, if we're looking to cross over to what we can learn from the VC world, is growth. Obviously, we know how to grow spending a lot of money, but I think we've also learned elements of efficient growth or what growth looks like and how to do it. Because I now understand the imports of figuring out how to grow as quickly as possible in a way that's affordable, because otherwise, as a management team, you're not going to make any money. I think what's interesting
2: is that both are trying to capture market share. So a VC-backed business is all about capturing market share, isn't it, and spending money to do so. Whereas private equity also is trying to capture as much market share as they can, but generate as much cash flow whilst doing so.
1: I'm not actually sure. Like, I think there's a slight difference. Like some venture-backed businesses are looking for market share, but the difference is very a lot of them are looking to create a market in the first place and then win the market. And that's where the unicorns tend to come from versus being in an established market and winning market share, which is why it's expensive.
2: How are VC-backed management teams incentivized? What does the structure look like? Share options?
1: It's share options. And so it'll generally be, so the VC world for most people in the business will have some level of share options, like every single person from the receptionist through the CEO, but how many share options you have will vary widely across those teams. And then it tends to be structured based on your role and your salary. So it'll be a percentage of your salary in effect. Sometimes it's structured, sometimes it's not. And then it'll have a generally a four-year vesting schedule. And you'll have top-ups throughout the time so that you continue to stay engaged. So every year or two, you'd give your top performers a bit more. Then at the point of exit, it depends on what the articles look like as to whether or not you'll actually be able to leave with your shares. I mean, obviously going in, everybody's saying that you leave with them, but there's like a good lever, bad lever provision. And it depends on if that good lever provision is de facto a good lever and the business has to prove and you have to be clearly a bad lever or de facto is a bad lever and the board can just decide that basically anybody who dares leave is a bad lever and you have to negotiate hard to be a good lever. So it's kind of like a something to know on your way in. Then let's assume the vast majority of businesses will treat people well on their way out. And I think this might be an HMRC thing. You basically have 90 days, but I don't know if it's HMRC or just the way the articles tend to be drafted. You have 90 days to exercise your options and that will be at a strike price and what the strike price is and how it's been set varies on each set of shares that are issued or each option grant. And that strike price can be anything from one P to 10 pounds or 20 pounds. So it could be a check you barely notice, or it could be a massive check. And at that point you have to decide whether or not you believe that it's worth holding on to those shares. Or if you're employed at the point of the exit, you will pay the strike price as part of the sell of the shares. And so you hope that you know, the strike price is 10p, the shares are sold for 10 pounds. And so you earn the difference between the two and that's quite significant. You then have to pay tax, but you know that's how it works. So you basically don't own your shares until a few years out from when you're granted them and when they vest. It's sort of...
2: Good lever, bad lever provisions are definitely there in our world as well. Actually, the office I'm sitting in where I'm talking to you from is one of our advisory members in Pep Talks. They're called Jameson Corporate Finance, and they specialize. Actually, you cannot do deals, certainly secondary or tertiary deals as management teams without some serious advice behind you in terms of your equity and investment structure. If we sell our business that we've invested in for 100 million times, 170 million evaluation valuation, we sell it to another private equity fund, which happens an awful lot. The management team will stay in most cases. And what's great for management in this situation is they roll 50% of what they've made in the first transaction into the structure, the capital structure I've just described, into the second transaction. And they then are sitting in the loan note as well as the equity. So actually a second or third turn for private equity uh, for the management team is brilliant because they're really para-pursue against the private equity fund there. First time deals, you're usually sitting in that thin sliver of equity at the top of the capital structure, not in the loan note, unless you're an entrepreneur and rolling in. So you need really significant advice as you go through those transactions as a management team to structure, to make sure that your your investment is sitting absolutely perfectly alongside the private equity fund. But in the first time deals, if the management team leave, few of them are good levers. If you're in a secondary deal and you've done a great job, you got to an exit and you might leave halfway through the next transaction, it's much more likely that you'll be a good lever in that sort of situation. First time deals, probably not going to get a lot of equity back or even allowed to keep your equity if you leave before the transaction, before the exit. I completely see why you need that vesting as an incentive, as an important part of the equity incentive in a venture capital back business. Usually ours, the shares, the equity doesn't fully vest until a transaction. But the typical hold period is about four years, four and a half years. So back to Pep Talks Capital, we don't want to be holding businesses for too long. We want to be raising the money, deploying the money and returning the money in a nice three to five year cadence. Uh, And that's a healthy fund, a healthy firm with a good transaction track record.
1: At New Voice Media, we raised money every year. And every year I'd be like, "Whoa, more money than we know what to do is. And then the next, and then we'd be like, definitely don't need another round. Well, this will get us through. And then boom, here we go raising again. It is up after the second or third. I was like, yeah, come on. We just know we're raising. Like, let's, pre- let's not pretend that this is the round to end all rounds, but you're, it's value accretive each of these times, right? Like, and this was before the crazy times. This was more similar to where we are today. Although people weren't quite as risk averse. And so you're looking at a valuation that's increasing on every single one of those rounds. And so previous investors have the option to stick or come out, you know, so you'll have some of the early seeds who might take some money earlier in the process. So you're producing a lot of mini moments along the way, but as a leadership team, you're making way more value for everyone else than you are yourself, unless your options are vesting. But it's interesting that you say around like cliff vesting, because that's used to be how it was in the VC world and previously, but in America, it became time vested and it ended up moving over to the UK where you just couldn't hire good talent with a cliff vest because of what Brandon's talking about and knowing that you're not going to see an outcome for 10 years. And so you need to be able to be rewarded for what value you've driven.
2: Well, there are two things, aren't there? It takes longer and the probability, the chances of delivering success are less, and the risks are much higher. It's, it's a much riskier sort of scenario and playing field. The private equity landscape is is not without risk, but it's a completely different psychology. It's about backing good, strong, proven businesses, irrespective of size, that can demonstrate they can really capture growth in their market and become dominant players in those markets.
0: When it comes to leadership in private equity, what do you look for for those folks to be successful? And in particular, when you think about the CEO, is there any uh, elements from that CEO role that you, you really desire and look for to ensure that P company is going to do its trick?
2: I think the sort of character traits that you want from management teams, there's got to be a degree of entrepreneurialism about them. They're not true entrepreneurs in that they're not starting with nothing and On their kitchen tables but they have this sort of entrepreneurial element to them this is i'm really here again i'm generalizing I'm, i'm largely talking about the executive team but you want it in the management the senior management team as well so there needs to be this element of can do will do psychological strength utter belief and commitment that you get from entrepreneurs you need them to be strategically strong they need to be able to understand how to shape the strategy and craft the opportunity for the business. But at the same time, they've got to be really operational. They've got to get into the stuck into the weeds. And if we think about the mid-market, that range that we're investing in, those businesses aren't usually big and they're bigger than venture, but a few hundred employees rather than sometimes less than a hundred employees at the lower end, up to, you know, a few hundred, less than a thousand typically. So in terms of what needs to be done in the business to drive value in a very short period of time, a massive amount needs to be done. So these people have to get operationally really stuck in. They've got to get their hands dirty. They don't need huge amounts of resource around them to deliver what needs to be delivered they understand how to do that strategically and operationally so often they've actually come from much bigger businesses if you're bringing executives into this coo role you're probably from a headhunting perspective thinking about people who've run businesses that are much larger than this business today so if we go back to our 100 million valuation company we actually want to hire as, as investors. We're thinking about the COO role. We're probably thinking, right? We really want to bring somebody in who's who can run a business that's more like three or four hundred million in terms of enterprise value, because they're going to have that skill set and experience base to really accelerate how we get stuff done in this what has been maybe quite an entrepreneurial business so far. So they could, they know how to scale. They're like, and and I guess the real trick in terms of the COO role specifically is as much as you want to sort of triple the value of this business, and that usually means doubling the EBITDA, if not more, you're not looking to double the cost base. You're keeping the cost base as lean as you possibly can. And COOs in the private equity world, multi-sectors, multi-sizer businesses, so we're massively generalizing. Their job, their purpose for being is to really professionalize the operation and allow it to scale without tripling the cost base.
1: That's really interesting in that you're looking for people from bigger businesses to come in because in venture, it's almost always the opposite that when you get the people who are from big businesses and I've worked in businesses that are three, 400 people. So it's not size wise that different. They can't handle it and end up putting too much bureaucracy in, want too many resources, slow the business down and putting things that are not valuable. I'm generalizing that every so often you get somebody who gets it, but it's almost always the wrong hire.
2: That's the danger of when you go out to bigger businesses to find those hires. You're looking for a really special person because the chances are they're they're not going to have that mindset about them. They're not necessarily going to have that entrepreneurial edge that you're looking for. They're not necessarily going to be comfortable with getting completely back into the weeds. But that's the difficult thing about finding talent for private equity. You can't just grab somebody who looks good on paper and talks a good game in terms of operational professionalization. They've got to have that psyche about them as well. Otherwise, they won't transition into the smaller business and then they become a nightmare. It kills it culturally.
1: And so then why don't you look more for Experienced VC execs to move in. It's like if you go for big businesses, it's too slow a pace, too much bureaucracy. Look at VC businesses, it'll probably be too fast a pace and wanting to spend, but it would seem like it's a closer skill set.
2: Our world of private equity tends to bracket talent very firmly into boxes. And that's one of the sort of downsides and risks to talent acquisition is that you do ignore people because you have a sort of bias in your judgment that they're just not going to be able to make that transition. So one of the biases is actually, unless you've got private equity experience as an executive, you can't actually do the job, which obviously we don't believe in. And then we train private equity backed executives. You can definitely get the theory and the understanding. You do need that psychometric profile of that entrepreneurial hands dirty, get stuff done, work at pace. And think like an owner. So there should be a, a sort of pipeline of talent from VC into private equity that as long as they've run businesses of enough of a scale, because that's the challenge. If you're going to double the EBITDA, usually it involves going internationally, which I'm sure most venture businesses are doing the same thing. Usually it involves some MA. You're just taking on challenges that are much bigger and meatier than perhaps the business has done before. And that's why is this theory we actually need people who've run businesses two or three times the size and good ceos and good management teams are thinking about shaping their organizational structure for tomorrow rather than and tomorrow being you know three five and ten year windows rather than this business today you're not going to be this business today for very long
1: well we know that like i just think there's a lot of transferable skills I'm going to sell why you should be looking at VCs or why you should get more of your clients look at VCs. Well, I I, I think in your
2: world, I mean, what I'm really fascinated in this conversation to find out is in the private equity world, you're looking at sort of 15, 20, 30, 40% sort of annualized growth. Sometimes you're getting 100% annualized, annualized growth, but probably rarely again I'm concerned i'm generalizing but in your world you want 100 percent annualized growth that's sort of basis of what you're after so when it comes to hiring people and building scale and you know professionalizing you guys i think are doing it at a much much faster pace than we are how does a business double in size in terms of employees
0: in 12 months
1: Hire a COO.
2: <laughs> How does a COO do that?
0: I mean, part of the trick of the trade, and this is probably a, a very large difference between private equity and venture capital backed companies, but there's a tremendous amount of effort put into talent acquisition and onboarding for new employees. Because what you are very wary of as a COO is when you're hiring a lot of people in a very short timeframe, you are process by which you hire people, vet people to ensure you're getting the right people with the right talents and the right seats. You need to do a very good job to ensure that when people land, you've got the right person. And then the part B part of the plan is the onboarding to ensure that they understand their role within the company, they're aligned and focused on what needs to be done, and making sure that that onboarding is watertight from a process standpoint to ensure that they are ready to roll post that onboarding in the sense of they know what their job is, they know what the focus looks like. And a lot of the effort that I put in from a CEO perspective is to ensure that we have a strategy. The strategy is clear. The people on the ground are aligned and focused on that based on the structure and processes of the company that we've set up in this case, and taking this very diverse set of folks that have all come into the company within a very short time frame and getting them all aligned roles responsibility-wise, and also within their functional groups and cross-functional groups, highly focused on what needs to happen. Do you use operating models to do that? I mean, how, is, is there a sort of playbook
2: that you use to try and drive engagement around value creation? Because that, again, that's the challenge for us. You, you, you know, these these businesses are trying to get everybody really focused on, we've got to do these three or four things. And if we do them and execute them really well, we're going to triple value.
1: The things where venture businesses struggle is to identify and really stick to focus because the world is your oyster and it's really scary because we're mostly disrupting a market or creating, and especially in category creation, figuring out product market fit, how are you going to place your bets on which geography, which persona, which vertical you're going to go after, and then sticking with it and aligning everybody is really hard. And you're also attracting people who are entrepreneurial and excited and have 500 ideas and everybody wants to do their ideas. And So there's a lot of stripping back and a lot of figuring out what is the most important thing today. So one of the things that we have done is year-long strategy plans and year-long OKRs, but then run on a quarterly cadence. And pretty much by the halfway point, what you thought was your year-long strategy or your OKRs, I shouldn't say strategy, no longer is. And so I almost think that There's no need to do year OKRs. And you're really pushing in a quarterly cadence with weekly check-ins for movement and holding people to account and expecting changes week in and week out. If nothing happens and you check in at a quarter, you've just lost a quarter of the year. And Now what are you going to do? So it's a lot of operational excellence in the detail every day.
2: I think you guys are probably much better than that than we are driving a focus on value creation is a difficult thing to get right and in both circumstances i guess we're flying the airplanes and re-engineering the the engines as we're flying which you know in our world when the business is growing well anyway there's sort of operational bandwidth pressure on the business just to do the day-to-day let alone drive the changes through that are really going to sort of make an incremental difference to value but going back to that talent Point. I just wonder whether you're sort of gorilla like in terms of uh, techniques that you use to attract talent. Because if you've got to double your team sizes, if you've got to hire 150 people this year, you know, I just I wonder how you do that. Do you have a go-to talent market approach?
1: Well, we have a talent team. That's one of the first things that you end up doing is bringing talent in internally, and then you wor- worry about investor branding as much as corporate branding and you build a pipeline and you also offer out money for referrals. And so your good people bring new people in. And it's, again, it's like a sales process. So you figure out what your ideal candidate profile is like. You figure out the markets where the talent is, and then you market to those areas. and get very well known. And then that attracts the talent in.
2: And that onboarding it's part of that preparing these people to manage, because I guess if you're building scaling that quickly, you've got these quite sort of junior managers, then having quite large teams, heavy degrees of responsibility to getting stuff done, and they may not have
0: that management experience previously. So this is one of the flies in the ointment, I think, to be honest. You have a tremendous amount of young people joining the organization that don't have a lot of experience in corporate environments or scale-ups in any form. And your line managers are also quite junior to your point. So how you set them up for success is critically important. And I think, what is that job? What does that responsibility look like? What is the person expected to do in terms of being a line manager and being a good line manager in this case? And in previous companies that I've worked for, we've done after the fact remedial exercises to get line managers up to speed. And I think if I was to join my next organization, this would be higher on the list, to be honest, to ensure that these managers are going to be successful. And I think a lot of the attitude, at least historically, is that we're here to get the job done and to focus on the goals of the company and the strategy of the company and to execute our OKRs and whatever. And Mm -hmm. line management is a means to an end just to ensure that that focus is there. And what gets lost in the mix a little bit is being in a position where the line manager is you know, effectively coaching that individual, empowering that individual, having the right conversations to ensure that there's a level of empathy, caring for that individual, some of that stuff gets pushed to the side in a sense. And and I think there's just a recognition that needs to be more more focus on it.
1: And everybody has to learn quickly because you have individual contributors who've become line managers. You have line managers who've become managers of managers. You have managers who've become leaders of managers of managers of individual contributors. So everybody's learning that new technique while trying to deliver, while trying to figure out all the rest of the issues. And so investing in L and D specifically around how to manage is critical. And then also something that we came a bit late to the party on at peak. I am a huge proponent of is people analytics. I just did not understand how important people analytics are. So that is all of your surveys flash reports, looking at your attrition, looking at the hiring rates, and really understanding your people data internally as much as what you look at externally, because that's where you can see how good managers are actually performing because you can track like who are the unhappiest teams, who are the happiest teams, what is the feedback going on from those teams, but it's also critical for any level of DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion for uh, blind spots. We're just like, who's being put on pips, who has performance management, who's being promoted. And when you look at the numbers, you can start to see trends that you don't see as individuals. And so for me, if I ever do a full-time job again, making sure we have a really good HRIS and a people ops person and look at our numbers uh, internally is one of the first things I'd be doing.
2: I think that's an area that venture is so much stronger at. And a lot of the businesses that we might back as Pep Talks Capital have a very sort of low-level HR function. And that HR function is about managing risk, it's not really about people strategy. We see that businesses that are under PE ownership and having to scale quickly, they have to get their heads around, okay, well, we need a people plan here. And I think, you know, even though your businesses aren't throwing off the cash or generating the profits yet, you're getting much quicker into that people strategy and organizational design than a first-time private equity-backed business. I think it's a lot to
0: learn from you guys. Yeah. And I think the other piece that gets kind of missed sometimes is the efficiency with your talent acquisition and onboarding is incredibly important because the amount of time you end up spending on interviews, both yourself personally, but also the wider company is ridiculous sometimes, especially if you're hiring massive batches of people. You have half the companies interviewing versus actually doing their work in this case. So being watertight on that interview process to ensure that only the people that are needed to be there are there but you're also being rigorous enough to ensure you're getting the right candidates in this case. There's a bit of a balance there, but the efficiency part of it is is incredibly important. Is
2: this a big part of the COO's job in your world? Is it? Is the COO also a bit of a CPO, or does a CPO sit alongside you?
1: I think this is one of those difficult-to-answer questions. <laughs> uh, it has ended up being a part of the job, I think, because we're more... strategically or operational strategy aligned and thinking through it as yet another process. Whereas a lot of chief people officers have come through either mitigating risk or talent and might not be thinking quite as strategically. So partnering with the CPO to think through the way these areas that our brains actually work like this is helpful. I think that
2: analytics piece is a real value add into private equity as well. I think it would be fairly rare for first-time deals that have been led by entrepreneurs and now maybe by a professional management team will have sophisticated business, uh, people analytics. And I think you can't really have a people strategy. I mean, you could spend a huge amount of time hiring and resourcing, but unless you're understanding what's going on under the bonnet, it's really you could be wasting an awful lot of your time.
0: How do you engage and incentivize employees in a back company? Because in the VC world, generically, there are three elements that we tend to use. And the first one is this concept of vision, mission, purpose, whatever you want to call it. We are here on a mission. We have a tremendous vision for this company. That's really exciting. We're on a mission to get from point A to point B. We're creating a marketplace. There's huge, crazy, fun dynamics at play here. That's tremendously exciting. So that's kind of point A. Point B is people coming into the company with having all sorts of opportunities to be promoted because the company is growing in size. There's all sorts of roles that are populating themselves. And if a junior person is doing a phenomenal job within a very short time period based on thresholds, they should be able to get to some other position that they desire in this case. And then the last piece of the puzzle is really just the ESOP share option grant incentives where everyone has a stake in the the game here a little bit in terms of our success. But I'm just wondering in the P back companies, how do you do it? What does it look like to get folks really excited?
2: I think if you're going to do it well, I think yeah the right way to do it is virtually identical. But because these businesses have come from they might be carve outs from large corporates, they might be having been led by a very sort of charismatic sort of all in entrepreneurial leader, the right path for our businesses <laughs> that we invest in is they take this route and adopt a very similar sort of model to incentivize and engaging their, their talent but sometimes they're starting from a base that's completely different and they need to go through that sort of transition. I think one of the mistakes that some private equity back management teams can fall into is sort of using the private equity vocabulary of EBITDA and multiples and arbitrage and exits in the wider employee community. And the thing is, not everybody Again, I'm generalizing some private equity-backed portfolio companies will incentivize their whole team, the whole employee base, You know, everybody, the cleaner a receptionist, right up to the chief exec. And if you can do that, that's fantastic, but not everybody has the opportunity to do that. And if, if you're in that sort of first case, well then you have an opportunity to educate everybody in the business around what it means to be private equity backed and what's so fantastically great about it because everybody's in the same position, everyone's incentivized. But if they're not and you're using this vocabulary and terminology, you can lose engagement very, very quickly because the staff base, the employee base, the people who are going to do a massive amount of the work are going to sit there and think, Well, this is this is for the private equity shareholder and for you guys to make loads of money. So we would encourage teams and CEOs and leaders to follow the same route, engage around a sense of purpose. Why do people come to work? What makes this business cool? They don't quite have that sort of change the world dynamic that your businesses often do. But if this is a successful business, then it's adding to that society and community that sits within, it's thrown off it's creating employment opportunities it's throwing off tax generation which is going back into the community it's providing a service that you know their customers buy into and require so you've got to find a sense of purpose in a business that really drives the emotional engagement people have got to think i'm proud of the business i'm coming to work for whatever that business is whether you're manufacturing widgets or you know whether you're creating sort of healthcare software that could be the solution to a diagnosis so I think it needs to be similar. And then obviously you're using the the incentivization and the equity to do that. And exactly the same as you, career opportunities. There's two types of equity, I'd say, for management teams and executives and for employees. and Lower level managers in these portfolio businesses, if they can get through a first investment period, that first three to five year window, their career equity, the value of that experience is huge out there in the market. Because as I said right back at the beginning, private equity tend to like to bracket people and go, well, have they done it before? If you've done it before and you've seen a return, you've actually delivered a, been part of an exit or you've been part of a business that's been through an exit, you then know what's involved here. You're familiar with the playing field and therefore probably the risk of taking you on and you being able to deliver what the spec requires you to deliver is, is going to be much lower. So actually, we often say to management teams like, yeah, okay, sometimes you're not going to make the return that you would expect to from your equity. But next time around, you've got a, a much higher chance. And because they're three to five year windows, you know, four years, four and a half years typically is a whole period, they come and go. You know, you're into four years fairly quickly, and you can find yourself another job. Headhunters—that's um, what I used to do for a living. My first business. That's what we did. You know, you you are looking for people who've been in these businesses before.
1: So Sam, a fascinating conversation. Have loved it so much. Thanks for joining us today.
2: My pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you guys as well. You know, just I think there's so much to learn from the venture experience,
1: and I, I do think you know
2: private equity should be looking beyond the world of the private equity-backed portfolio talent pool and the larger corporate talent pool. We should be casting into the venture world as well. So I'm sure there's great talent there. I know there's great talent there. So it's been great to talk to you. And we should come back and do another episode because we we got lots of other points. I'm sure we could cover.
0: Thank you, Sam Smith, for joining us on the Operations Room. If you like what you hear, please leave us a comment or please subscribe and we'll see you next week.